Hello, this is Blake. Before we get started with this supersized Halloween season episode of Scored to Death Radio, I want to let you know about Scored to Death, the dark art of scary movie music. It is a documentary about horror film music that I am trying to make based on my Scored to Death book series. Running through October and ending on November 1st, 2022, I am running a Kickstarter campaign that is raising money to make the film. Without the financial support of horror and film music lovers like you, this film will not get made. So check out Scored to Death, the dark art of scary movie music on Kickstarter, and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Scored to Death to keep up with all the news about the project and to see video from some of the footage that we've already shot. Now, let's get to the show.
This is Scored to Death Radio from the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I'm Jay Blake Fischera, and I'm the author of the Scored to Death books, which feature in-depth interviews with 30 of horror's greatest composers. We just heard Typo Negative's cover of Summer Breeze, originally by Seals and Crofts, which, in my mind, can mean only one thing. Today, we're talking about the 1990s. But first, I'd like to introduce my co-host for this evening, her name is Rachel Reeves, and she is genuinely one of my favorite horror movie and film music journalists. Hello, Rachel, and thank you for joining me today. Hi. Wow, what an intro. I am so excited to be here. You know, we've been longtime chatters and collaborators, but it's it's an honor and a privilege to be on the podcast and even more exciting to be talking about 90s horror. Love it. For the people that don't know you, uh, why don't you tell us just a little bit about who you are and when, where people can find your writings and all that stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I am a freelance film journalist of sorts. I uh, write a lot about horror movies, but my special uh, interest slash passion is going to be film scores and doing a lot of composer interviews. And those are typically scattered about the web on places like Dread Central, Remorgue, Valingo, Film Cred, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, you can keep up with all of that. Follow me on Twitter, I guess, at VinylGirl, G-R-R-R-L. Kind of the idea of this episode came about because for 4th of July, I watched I Know What You Did Last Summer which was the first time I watched it since it came out in theaters. Oh, wow. And my tweet was something kind of snarky about like, I liked it this time, but it also reminded me of like why I didn't like any of those late 90s slasher movies. And Eric Woods, who kind of runs the Cinematic Sound Radio Network, was like, that's a good idea for a show. You should do a show on 90s slasher movies great scores for bad movies. And I was like, well, that's kind of two extremes. I necessarily wouldn't call them great scores and I wouldn't call them bad movies, <laughs> you know, but. Uh... So funny. You and I, I, I am honored to be here because I think we have, we're coming from two different places. And that's one of the reasons why I <laughs> wanted you to come on because I found, and this is like a total blanket statement, maybe sexist, I found that women that are younger than me mm -hmm. have a relationship to things like Scream 
and these kinds of movies in a way that I just don't. So I just assumed that you would also <laughs> have a passion for these movies that I don't because I know that you're a, a little younger for me. And I don't necessarily think it's just women. I think it's I think it's an age thing. Totally. We, we can talk a little bit about that, but I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no. I think this was my gateway into horror. I didn't come from a background of a family that was really keen on horror. I didn't have any older siblings. I'm a little bit younger. I lived in a slightly more rural community. So I saw, I just have such vivid memories of seeing the little tiny VHS rental store in my local grocery store because we didn't even have a Hollywood video or a blockbuster where I was but seeing Scream seeing I know what you did last summer the faculty disturbing behavior cruel intentions those films were very enticing and sexy to me and I would rent them and watch them when I was babysitting at other people's houses after the kids went to bed and so yes these films have a very special place in my heart and I have a little bit of a different um, association with them but they they led me into a world of horror and I feel very grateful for that for them introducing me to a lot of the classics that I hadn't seen before so that was my way in yeah and that's kind of what I found and and maybe just women are more vocal about it than men. You know, that's kind of the reason that I've come across. Scream and even the movies that came in the wake of it were the gateway drug for a lot of yeah. horror fans now. And uh, they just weren't for me. Oddly, I was like the perfect age for it. I was a senior in high school when Scream came mm-hmm. out. And I saw it in theaters December of the year it came out with my friends. I was a freshman in college when I Know What You Did last summer and Scream 2 came out. So, like, I was the exact age of the characters in those movies. Maybe that's the problem. See, I was, like, 11, 12. So these were, like, incredibly, like, sexy stars and this cast and, like, these teenagers were so cool. And so there was, like, a little bit more of, like, aspirational kind of stuff there, I think. So, But maybe I mean, you were already living it, so you're, like, this isn't realistic at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that my friends and I were very reminiscent of the... Uh, oh, no? You're not hanging out with Jennifer Love Hewitt? <laughs> I will say that is one thing that I know what you did last summer did, was that it gave me the goal of marrying Jennifer Love Hewitt one day. <laughs> but um, one of the reasons why I wanted to play Summer Breeze at the beginning of the show was, one, because even though I didn't listen to a lot of 90s music at the time, I did like Typo Negative. Mm-hmm. And it opens the movie, I Know What You Did Last Summer. And even though we're not going to talk about it a whole lot in this podcast, the soundtracks of songs for these movies was a really big, was like part of the identity of these movies. It wasn't just the scores. It was, you know, Scream was a big soundtrack. Yeah. The songs were as much a part of the kind of the musical identities of these movies as the scores. And even though we weren't going to be, we're not going to be talking too much about that. I wanted to represent that at least a little bit with uh, opening the show with something fun like that. So, uh, enough of my blabbing. Let's play a little bit of music.
We just heard the tracks, Trouble in Woodsboro, Bathroom, Sydney Wants It, and a little excerpt from The Cut from Hell, all by Marco Balchami for 1996's Scream, directed by Wes Craven. An interesting thing about this score for me is that uh, it's completely unmemorable, if that's a word, when I'm away from it. For some reason, the music doesn't stick with me, but I think it's incredibly effective within the context of the movie, which is really its real job. But kind of visiting it for the first time for this with just the music away from the movie, I think I have an appreciation for this music more so now than I did then, because this is really the first time that I've sat down and actually just listened to the cues. I think that you were talking about the soundtracks earlier. I think that's part of, not the problem with a lot of these films, but an unintended consequence of having such strong soundtracks is that more often than not, a lot of these films and many that we're going to talk about often get overshadowed by some of the big needle drops. Like you think Scream and the first thing that comes to my mind is Nick Cave. (laughs) You think Red Right Hand. You're not necessarily thinking of Marco Beltrami. So I can see where you're coming from, from that for sure, because yeah, it's easy to get overshadowed by such a killer song like that. That's so iconic and integral to this franchise. I mean, in some ways... If you can remember the music, it kind of means it wasn't as effective as maybe it should have been because, <laughs> because like, that means you're hearing the music and you're not as kind of enveloped into the story. Right. And I think it's one of the huge strengths of this movie. Like, in my head, like, I remembered that Scream 2 had this kind of, like, industrial slant to it. But in my head, like, Scream is always just, like, this orchestral score. And it is that, but it's... It's actually a ton more than that. And a lot of the industrial things that I remember from Scream 2 are actually just things that he redoes mm-hmm. that were originally in this movie, like Trouble in Woodsboro. The reason why I wanted to play the last three minutes of the track, the cut from hell at the end of this is because when I revisited the movie last year, his decision, and I'm sure it was also Craven's decision, to kind of play Drew Barrymore's character's death the tragedy of it, yeah, more so than the horror of it, really made an impact on me. So I wanted to include that section of music in this part. I mean, the track itself is like 11 minutes long, and uh, we want to try to fit as many tracks into this episode as we can. So to start the show off with like this 11-minute track seemed kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wanted to, and all the other tracks that we played are so great from this score, and I didn't want it to just be that. I wanted to give the kind of like a, a little sampling of, of what the score has to offer. But I did want to include that kind of little section because I've heard Balchami say that before Scream, he's never seen a horror movie. And I, yep. <laughs> and I hear a lot of composers be like, well, I don't like horror movies. And I, I mean, most of the ones I've talked about that are, you know, older than 50, you know, it's almost like a badge of honor that they, they don't know a lot of horror movies. At least they didn't when they started. And, I mean, there's part of me that calls bullshit on some of that because it's like, if none of you have seen horror movies, how can you guys all score horror movies the same way? (laughs) (laughs) You're calling them out, huh? (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, But I think part of that, whether he's never seen one or not, I think is probably a strength of this to scream in that I don't know if someone who was incredibly uh, into horror movies would have played that moment the way 
he does. Yeah, I like this score. I appreciate its approach. And I do think that it had a tremendous impact on a lot of the films that we're going to be discussing and a lot of the 90s films and early 2000s films that follow it. I think that it kind of set the tone for what these films could be musically and really broke away from some of the, you know, familiar tropes that we see in the late 90s and early 90s. You know, the the ripple effect of the John Carpenters and the Harry Manfredini. And I think that there are a few exceptions. Thinking about looking what predated this a bit, you see, you know, Candyman, Philip Glass, that has a very classical feel. Bram Stoker's Dracula has that as well. But as far as slashers go, I really do think that this sort of set a new direction that just said, yeah, you can have really beautiful orchestral music in these films. It doesn't have to be a really minimalist, synthetic approach. And I do think that Beltrami did that. I mean, he he worked with Jerry Goldsmith. I mean, if you're going to work with somebody like, God damn, like it doesn't get much better than that. So I, I don't know if I believe him that he's never seen a horror movie because you're telling me you worked with Jerry Goldsmith, <laughs> but you never watched like some of his older films. Like maybe you're just your definition of horror is a little narrow. You know how people are always arguing like, is this one? This is a horror film. Is Alien a horror film? Is Jaws a horror film? Like get out of here with that. So I, you know, so whether or not he considers them horror films, I guarantee he had some some frame of reference for darker material, and I think that assists him here and there's a thing i think you know even in what you're saying this idea of lush beautiful orchestral score for a slasher movie but so much of the score kind of isn't that at the same time it's not but i think that he's paying a little bit more attention to to character work and some of more of like the emotion of the story then maybe somebody who was just in the horror realm at this time period would have done. They would have played, like you said, they would have played up the scares, the crazy, creepy sounds, the jump scares, the more unsettling feeling where I think that he has that for sure. But I think that he's looking at it and approaching it from a more traditional film scoring sense. And uh, with that, in the late 90s, a sequel to Scream came out. So uh, let's play a handful of cues from Scream 2.
We just heard Sid and Dewey talk, introducing Gale, Dewey's theme, and Shower from Scream 2, which came out in 1997 and again was directed by Wes Craven, and the music was by Marco Baltrami. Okay, Scream 2. You know, slasher movies are no stranger to the sequel or the franchise. And by this point, the slasher movie franchises that at least I grew up with were kind of uh, getting a little bit stale, let's say. But Scream, following in those footsteps, comes out with a sequel just the following year, knocked it out. Again, music by Marco Balchami, and he kind of revisits a lot of the same stuff. He keeps kind of musical continuity. What about you? How do you feel about Scream 2 as a movie and as a score? I really enjoy Scream 2. I mean, I love that Marco Belchami returns. I love that, you know, sonic consistency that it gives. Like, I love just franchises in general that do that. It gives you something to, you know, more than just the characters to hold on and connect to. And it feels like you're coming home in a way. I enjoy his playfulness with this one. I think it feels, you know, it's like this franchise is developing its footing and... I just, yeah, I appreciate that he's able to have fun with some of these things, especially like we play Dewey's theme, right? Which is just like so perfect for that character. And on its own, it sounds so goofy, but in the moment when you're watching it, it's just delightful. And I love that it's, you know, we always talk about on Losers Club how it's very like reminiscent of the Broken Arrow theme song which apparently they use to temps parts of this score which is really like such an odd choice to me <laughs> but i think that's just kind of that idea that you can have fun with this and still make it an interesting piece of music and tie it back into film music history because i definitely think that beltrami's making a lot of references to film music history even outside of horror which is which is really fun as a fan, I guess. Yeah, Dewey's theme definitely has a Morricone uh, yeah. Western vibe to it for this, uh, you know, sheriffy uh, <laughs> deputy character. Yeah, but at the same time, introducing Gale kind of uh, rehashes the Trouble and Wordsboro theme that we heard in the last uh, section of music. But even his choices of instruments are kind of, like, interesting. I don't know if it's proper to say this these days. Who knows? But, like, the Jews harp and uh, mm. sit and do we talk. It's such an interesting uh, instrument to choose for that cue, but it's kind of effective. Uh, but that cue also plays up that emotional side of the score that we were talking about with the first Scream score. And I chose the cue shower, which is actually from the movie within the movie. So it's not really... A, nar a narrative piece of movie, but I like the cue and I kind of chose it because it's so different than the rest of them. So it was for like listening experience, I thought ending this collection of, of cues with something that was a little bit different, maybe a little more stereotypical horror, but still kind of like expertly executed would, would be fun. Yeah. Again, 1997, by that point I was in college. So I was, I was, I went to college with uh, Sid and everybody. <laughs> Uh, my, my nerdy film school experience wasn't exactly the same and it wasn't exactly, uh, Randy's experience with film school either, but, yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like how, I mean, you do see these characters grow, like they all are older, they're going to college. And I, I think it's, I like the way that Beltrami, there's these threads that connect the films, but it also expands and you get some new material that 
fits the setting, fits where these characters are at. There's just enough for you to grasp onto, but it also evolves in a way that fits this new story. And I think that you do see that continue as he continues to score. I mean, all of them except the most recent one, which is also quite interesting, but that's a story (laughs) discussion for another day. (laughs) Before we move on to the next segment of music, uh, I got to get some promoting in. I'm in the process of trying to create a score to death documentary. And by the time this episode airs, Mm -hmm. drops, posts, there will be a Kickstarter campaign running. So if you're interested in supporting a film about horror film music, uh, please check out uh, the Kickstarter campaign, give if you can, and I'm sure we'll have links and you can follow me at score to death on all the major socials and uh, information will be at score to death.com. My main goal with it is really to not do like an abridged version of the books, but to tackle the subject in a way that I just couldn't do with the books. So right now the focus is going to be specifically how music works in horror movies. And we've already interviewed the first five composers for it. And for all the music collectors out there, I reached out to a bunch of very lovely musicians and composers. And what we're doing is we're doing a uh, limited edition run of a compilation album of horror movie themes. All new recordings by Steve Moore, Wojciech Golchewski, the band Voyager, Alan Howarth, Holly Amber Church, Richard Christie, and many more. So we have a very interesting kind of collection of musicians coming together to help support the film and, and the project. And so we're going to release finally a score to death record, which would, uh, should be fun. So uh, please check out the Kickstarter campaign. Give what you can, if you can. Follow me on social media or at scoretodeath.com for more information. And feel free to uh, email me or DM me with questions if you have them. Rachel, I'm going to rely on you to uh, give the most money for it. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> I'll start saving now. <laughs> But uh, getting back to the show, we talked a little bit about it. I know what you did last summer earlier. So uh, let's dive into a kind of block of music combining both John Debney scores for I Know What You Did Last Summer and John Frizzell. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I still know what you did last summer.
We just heard the cues, A Young Man on the Edge, Homecoming, and No Escape for Helen. Poor Helen. Uh, from I Know What You Did Last Summer, 1997, music by the great John Debney. We then heard Julie's theme, Voodoo, and The Greenhouse from I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, 1998, composer John Frizzell. Debney's kind of an interesting composer. He's got an interesting resume, a lot of television. He's got a lot of what I would say most people would consider mediocre or average projects, not a comment on his music in those projects. But uh, he's also scored a lot of really great projects. And uh, most recently, I really loved his music for the recent season of The Orville. I think he really knocked that out of the park with that. Frizzell, also a kind of an interesting composer with an eclectic resume. He's worked a lot with Mike Judge, of all people. So, uh, the Know What You Did Last Summer movies. Yeah. How do you feel about the movies? And uh, full disclosure, I have not seen I Still Know What You Did Last Summer since 1998. But I did recently, as I pointed out, visit I Know What You Did Last Summer and enjoyed it thoroughly. Okay, so I'm just going to say, this is a franchise of diminishing returns. I like the second one well enough. The third one is, oh, wow. It's something but anyways these first two i think are, are are really fun what i like about them and the music i really like how moody it is i think it fits the you know the setting of both of these films which is is different so you've got you know debney it's this you know seaside town it's oceanside environment it's spooky it's I just, I love that. And I think that his background, I mean, he comes from a Disney family. Like he grew up, like his dad was like a studio producer for Disney or something insane like that. So he's very cinematic, I think, in his approach and his instrumentation. And I love that in the first one. And then for the second one, they go to an island where the, you know, the hooked killer guy is following them, I guess. <laughs> and... So it, it's, you know, a different setting. It's still ocean, but there's a lot more of those island elements um, that Frizzell brings into that, which we which we heard, right? You hear that in Voodoo and you hear that in the greenhouse. Oh, yeah. I just I just now remembered that Jack Black is in this movie, which is <laughs> with dreadlocks. So if that tells you anything. So it's kind of. And Jeffrey Combs, if I remember correctly. Yes, you do. Yes, correct. And so I. Yeah. You know, it embraces more of that attitude in the second one. So it's interesting that they, you know, switched composers. But I think that Frizzell does a pretty good job of making that transition. It seems like he's conscious of what Debney did in the first one and brings just enough of that into the second one with also really having some of the, the cheesier, I guess, aspects of it. But it never, for me anyways, it never crosses that line into like, okay, what are you doing here? Like, this is ridiculous. It's still, it has fun, but the scares still work. The tension still works. We still care about these characters, especially Julie, obviously. My biggest memory from seeing I Still Know What You Did Last Summer was sitting in a packed movie theater. And I just remember there was these guys sitting behind us that were a little bit younger than I was. I was going to say these kids behind us, but I was like 20. So <laughs> <laughs> they were maybe 16, 17. And I just remember this. I don't even remember the scene, but I said my memory, it was probably a scene where Jennifer Love Hewitt was in a bikini. And mm -hmm. I just remember this guy like, like, Oh, damn. <laughs> 
that's my big memory was like how excited this guy got over that's funny i mean fair <laughs> reasonable i i do think that okay so that story it, that's interesting because i think what this film well it does a couple things well i think when looking at it in relation to scream so with scream you know, it had a pretty decent, I mean, it had a good budget, not crazy, but like as far as horror movies were going at that time, like good. And so I think that it's success that carried on and allowed films like this one to also have a decent budget. I think Scream was like 15 million and this one was about 17. And with that, I mean, you see the casting, they paid a little bit more attention to casting, I think. And that's why we get just this cast just stacked full of babes, you know, all of them just and still, and I still know what you did last summer, same thing. And I think that you also see that with the music because they have more money and more that that opens a lot of doors as far as what they can do with instrumentation and orchestration. Maybe it allows them to have some more actual acoustic orchestration um, recorded than they would have otherwise, which... You know, well, that was a lot of the reason, you know this, that, that's a lot of the reason why so many older films have so many synthetic elements, because it was cheap. Yeah, yeah. So I think that Scream's success opened the door for a lot of these other films to actually give, a, you know, toss a few more coins, at least. <laughs> Not saying it was necessarily a lot, but a few more to these composers, which kind of allowed them to embrace more of this orchestral sound and have a little bit more leeway in what they were able and capable of doing. I absolutely agree with that. But I also think in some ways, maybe to their detriment in the long run. And I don't know, this is mm-hmm. this this coming from a guy who just said, like, I don't remember the screen music. But but listening to them back to back, yeah. you know, listen to like almost their whole scores, like screen the screen movies, and it could just be Balchami, but it could be those kind of like industrial synthetic elements has a much more distinct identity, I think, to the music than the stuff here. And I think A Young Man on the Edge, the kind of like the opening theme, it sounds to me like they almost must have tempt that with something from screen because it seems... Oh, for <laughs> sure. I mean, you think about, you know, something succeeds so well immediately, they're going to be like, oh, we have to like, we're got to do something very similar. So yeah, it's got to be a tough corner to be put in because they want, they're they're doing it for a reason. I mean, it's movies are made to make money you know for the most part and so yeah you i'm sure that was a huge factor in debney's approach but i think the music kind of starts to shy away from that as the as the movie certainly the the cues we played yeah homecoming the uh, the second cue we played is very lush almost bernard herman-esque but reminded me a lot actually of um jerry goldsmith's score for basic instinct oh. if you go back and you listen to that i mean it's the, he's using a different sound but um some of the stuff that the strings are doing is kind of reminiscent of that so that that this cue homecoming kind of reminds me it's like bernard herman through the lens of jerry goldsmith kind of yeah i can see that and i, I mean which is very different than what balchami was doing with scream and and I think that that is a little bit of Debney's personality, probably just this classic cinematic upbringing, a kid who grew up on studio lots like he's going to, you know, these are these had to be huge influences on him. So I'm sure that that's, you know, sneaking in there a little bit for sure. And uh, with No Escape for Helen, I kind of wrestled with a few different cues. You know, I feel like we need to get some of the more 
for lack of a better term, stereotypical kind of horror suspense stuff. And even though this one does seem on its surface more typical orchestral horror, I think it's like a beautifully crafted cue. But then as we get into, I still know what you did last summer, you know, we get Julie's theme, which is kind of stereotypical horror, but in the other end of the spectrum. It's got like that ostinato line, mm-hmm. which feels almost like Carpenter-esque in some ways. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff that like I just eat up as like a film music horror fan, you know, like just give me four notes that repeat over and over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then fill everything in behind it to make it interesting. And uh, I actually originally had a different cue in to finish this off than Greenhouse. But then I came across this score and it was just so kind of like over the top, Bernard Herrmann, Cape Fear homage. Mm -hmm. I just thought it was kind of a great way to kind of end (laughs) this segment with something so intense. But it's an interesting juxtaposition of cues. And that's kind of what I tried to do with this uh, kind of this round of music is just give a little bit of taste of all the different flavors that these two films have to offer. But uh, coming up next, we have something, I don't know, I think it's kind of special. So we're going to listen to a suite of music from Urban Legend, and we'll explain why it's significant after we hear it.
You're listening to Score to Death Radio from the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I'm Jay Blake Fischera, and we're here with Rachel Reeves. As always, you can get full track listings for everything played on Score to Death Radio at cinematicsound.net. Uh, we just heard a suite of music from Urban Legend, also known as the Urban Legend Suite. It was a uh, 1998 slasher film directed by Jamie Blanks and uh, the music composed by one of my all-time favorite people in general, Chris Young. Why this cue is kind of significant is because usually each block of music is kind of a suite that I assemble. But for this one, Chris actually assembled this suite. Chris talks about it a bit in my first Score to Death book, where he has this kind of personal project that he's doing where he's going through his entire filmography of scores and creating suites away from the movie, reimagining them kind of like not as film cues, but as like orchestral pieces of music. And it's something obviously he's been doing for a long time because he told me about it back in like 2014. And so when we were assembling this show, I said, hey, Chris, can I play the urban legend suite from your upcoming box set? And he said, absolutely. So that's what we have here. Uh, something that uh, I don't think too many people have heard yet, which is, uh, I don't know, to me kind of exciting. It's a little bit of a debut. Um, even though people know the Urban Legend score. Although I don't know if there's an official release of this score. 1998, Urban Legend, another movie I remember seeing at the movie theater. Tell me how you feel about this one. This is one I'm interested to hear what you... I mean, I'm interested to hear always hear what you say, but yeah, this I've, one in particular. I've come to discover that it's a little bit controversial, this movie, in terms of how people feel about it. When I saw it, I can probably just say I probably didn't love it because like I said, I didn't really love any of these movies. <laughs> I genuinely walked out of the second one. <laughs> right. It was like the Hitchcock, the Hitchcock building, the Spielberg award. And I was in film school at the time and it was a very snobby film school. It was like an arty film school. I mean, people like how Hartley went to the film school that I went to. And, uh, and then there was like, I don't even remember the context. I don't remember the movie, but it was like somebody dies. And then it was like up in a clock tower or something. And someone was like, Jimmy. And they're like, no, I'm Jimmy's twin brother. And I was like, I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> Fair. I don't, I don't have time for this one. I'm kind of curious to go back and watch it now. Now that like, I'm a little more accepting of things and coming at it from more. Now there's like nostalgia for that time period, mm -hmm. which obviously I didn't have at that point because I was living in that time period. But, um, I remember liking it just fine. Like, again, I remember it was like, uh, Daniel Harris. Is that mm -hmm. her name? I was like, oh, it's, yeah, yeah. it's what's her from Halloween four, four and five. And uh, I was always a big fan of uh, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dad. So she was a very familiar face. I was like, oh, shit, I haven't seen her in a long time. I don't have strong feelings either way about this movie. I did watch it, I'm going to say last year for the first time since I saw it in movie theaters. Again, I mean, I don't know. I felt like I probably felt the same way about it. Like, I liked it just fine. I, I didn't remember Brad Dorf being in it. Mm -hmm. I didn't remember the Robert England was in it. It just shows you, like, I didn't remember a whole lot about it Yeah. when I when I revisited it. But it seemed pretty on par with, to me, what uh, the other movies were like at that time. Are you, uh, are you not a fan of this one? No, it's not that. I think that it, I, I think it's kind of goofy. And that's not a bad thing. Obviously, like Scream is has a lot of humor elements. Like that's a big part of it. But to me, this is it's one of those movies that's kind of goofy. But I'm not can like I think 
maybe it's intentional. Maybe it's not. I feel like Jimmy Blanks has a good sense of humor about this kind of stuff because I like Valentine too for a lot of the same reasons. But what I will say is that it's also a movie that I think if it had the wrong score could have been a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, thinking about if it just had something a little bit cheesier and just somebody not as incredibly talented as Christopher Young handling those duties, like it could have really been a detriment to the film. So it's one of those. And I think that that's an interesting aspect to it because I think that what Christopher Young brings to it is this a little bit of prestige. It elevates the film. It has an intentional playfulness that kind of lets the viewer in on that humor that I was kind of talking about that maybe Jamie Blanks is, you know, getting at. I like how he uses a lot of the story elements in the score, which I think is really fun. But, you know, and he he plays with, I feel like it plays with a lot of these spooky kind of classic horror sound tropes in a way that is very clever to me but also in a way that doesn't sound super derivative i don't know it's just very intentional and i'm just always impressed by this score especially when it the movie that it's paired with and this is not a slight against urban legend like i said i I love it for what it is it's no scream i think that it's i mean i like the urban legend idea but it's not necessarily like hugely groundbreaking i guess but yeah, I don't know. That's that's how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Chris is exceptionally talented at what he does. Mm-hmm. And I always, you know, I, I've played his stuff on podcasts. Uh, I played his stuff on Cuts from the Crypt, which I used to do before this show. And I always kind of say, like, Chris was doing Danny Elfman before Danny Elfman was doing Danny Elfman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like... Mm-hmm. A lot of the things that we think of as like Danny Elfman tropes, when you listen to some of Chris's stuff from like the the 80s and then into the early 90s, you can hear like, I think most people would be like, oh, that's Danny Elfman. It's like, no, well, and I think that's why they kind of are weird pair in that, you know, like Chris did scored Hellraiser and then Danny Elfman scored Nightbreed, mm-hmm. you know, because they, they kind of often not always but often play in this kind of like the same sandbox of of music and that's why like chris was a logical choice to replace elfman with spider-man 3 um not only because he had also worked with sam raimi on stuff but because i think they have similar sensibilities but totally different approaches to to those things and i just love chris's stuff and i know both chris and jamie blanks fairly well actually Jamie is a really talented composer himself and a huge fan of film music. So I know that he likely really relished the chance to work with Chris because let's face it, Chris is one of the best horror composers out there. I mean, who wouldn't want Chris scoring their first horror feature? And film music has many functions. And I totally agree with everything you've said about how the music is working in this film. And I think both Jamie and Chris were really smart to use the music to give the narrative some gravitas and kind of ground it. Uh, But, uh, The next block of music is um, an interesting one. We're going to listen to music from uh, Halloween H2O and uh, Mimic. There's kind of a weird connection to these two scores. So uh, whereas usually I kind of try to seamlessly blend things, I left a little bit of just the tiniest bit of space in between the H2O stuff and the Mimic stuff so that you can kind of get a sense of where one is ends and then one begins but uh, we'll talk more about these scores when we come back
we just started this musical block off with a collection of cues from Halloween H20 from 1998. I believe the film was directed by Steve Miner, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, music by John Ottman and uh, also Mark Baltrami. We'll get into that. Uh, we heard the main theme, which I pulled from the John Ottman CD, Portrait of Terror. And then the other two cues are just kind of a weird thing that I found as part of a bootleg. Somebody put together kind of a bootleg version of this score. And then we followed it up with Mimic from 1997. So we went back in time, scored by Malcolm Bachami, and we heard a little excerpt from Run to the Subway. And I'll explain why we heard just an excerpt. We heard the main titles, Pregnancy Test, Chewy, Steps Out. Halloween H2O, again, not a movie that I loved when I saw it. Not a movie that I love today, although I, I <laughs> though I'm definitely less hard on it nowadays than I was then. An interesting score. Always loved kind of like the opening credits of. I loved hearing the kind of an orchestral version of John Carpenter's Halloween theme. Didn't know this until many years later, but apparently there was a lot of controversy involving the score for H2O. Now, John Ottman did a score. Turns out nobody liked it. At least that's the story. Mm -hmm. And Marco Balchami being kind of like the Miramax golden boy for film composing was brought in and retooled for the longest time. Maybe even still, people don't really know what exactly he did. You know, was he came in and did rescoring. He did this. So uh, what we get is an interesting hybrid score. I'll be completely honest. When you listen to the John Ottman stuff, which he released on this album, Portrait of Terror, untouched by Marco Baltrami. And from what I understand, when Marco Baltrami having, coming in and doing this was not a job that he particularly was fond of <laughs> to come in and, yeah. and have to mess with somebody else's score. is uh, was, I'm sure, a very difficult position to be in. Awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and something I'd love to talk to him about, although I don't think he, he will. Um uh, but I like the Ottman stuff and when I listen to it separately. And I, I think they were being a little too critical of it and what it accomplishes. Because now you can listen to scenes that, you know, I think on a box set came out, you can find it online, where they kind of show a couple of scenes with Ottman's original score. And then they go on in, in the context of like a behind the scenes feature out, like trash it. And when you watch those scenes, I was like, I don't know, sounds fine to me. <laughs> Uh, I guess it just wasn't uh, Scream-esque enough. I just, it's just such an interesting piece of history. And it's even more interesting because it's a Halloween film. Because, you know, Ottman had this very... I mean, the movie... Uh, you look at what the movie itself is. And then Ottman, I think, rightfully, intelligently so, decided to take kind of like a Hitchcockian approach to it infusing Carpenter's ideas within his own kind of framework of how he pictured this film, which as we see it, like makes perfect sense to me and like where they were going with it. But then they just like it chopped it all up. And yeah, Beltrami's, you know, influence and pieces that are in there. What it does to me is it like it's ironically it kind of makes it much more of a 90s film knockoff, just like so many films were like 80s knockoffs of Halloween. And so it's just like, it's just so funny to me because it's like, you do realize this is like one of the OG franchises, right? Like, why are you worried about copying what Scream's doing? Like, you have this entire wealth 
of cinematic history behind you. Like, don't worry about Scream. Like, I get it, but just leave it alone. So it's just kind of funny that they didn't trust in the post-production process their own franchise. I mean, I'm not surprised. It's a bunch of people with money that just care about things other than the films themselves. But it's still just kind of a very odd, interesting film in general and then the score part of it just makes it even more interesting so weird you know like i said i pulled two of these extended cues from a bootleg because there is no like official release for this score other than ottman's uh, portrait of terror yeah and understandably so why there's no release the cues that i played I, I think are not completely accurate but i think they do a good job of like creating the sense yeah of what those scores were and reason why i said i you know i don't think they're completely accurate is because there's an article in the June 1999 issue of Film Score Monthly uh, where writer uh, Jason Comford interviews most of the people involved, you know, Ottman and, and stuff. And Ottman, I think, gives him the final like score sheets from the mixing stage and they publish them. And they, you can see that there are cues that a two-minute cue that's in H2O is made up of five different pieces of music and you know and some of the and one of those pieces of music from scream 2 is only like three seconds long (laughs) it's just so indicative of this film in general you know what i mean like every part of this is just kind of like a disjointed mess like i love there's lots of things i love about it i mean like josh hartnett hello but it's just so (laughs) i don't know i don't envy anybody that had to work on this film But I think what's interesting when you read this article about it and you see everything broken down and they try to, you know, they tell you like what the cues were and, you know, a lot of them, it's like shorthand code. For the layman, you don't really understand what it's saying a lot of time. But in the end, it breaks down that there's 59 minutes and 46 seconds of music in the movie. Five minutes and 52 seconds of that is what they're calling source music, which um, I'm guessing is either songs or like the John Carpenter music that they kind of bring back the original John Carpenter music with the controversy around it. I think we think of this as this huge Baltrami thing, but John Ottman's music is 61% of the score. Yeah. It might not be exactly the way he intended, but it's still very much uh, an Ottman score clocking into like 36 minutes, 36 seconds. Baltrami's contribution comes in at 17 minutes, 18 seconds, which is 29% of the score. For me, what the takeaway is it's still mostly a John Ottman score. Totally. Which I was, I don't know, made me feel good when I read, when I read it all broken down. A lot of his stuff still really is intact. So uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is uh, in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> but I do, uh, I do, I do like his approach. All credit to John Ottman. Like, no shade. I do like, and I like a lot of what he's done. I think it's a shame that we don't get more of his releases, like especially his horror releases. I would like to see them actually, you know, in some format. That'd be nice. I do like his approach. I think what he was doing is actually really smart for the franchise, and it's kind of just a shame they didn't trust in that a little bit more. Yeah. I agree. And, and, you know, Mimic was, it was an interesting choice that uh, Rachel chose to to include some music from Mimic. So why don't you talk a little bit about why you chose that? And then I will kind of explain why I played Run to the Subway, because that was something I kind of snuck in there at the top. Not necessarily what we would think of as a slasher movie, um, early movie of Guillermo del Toro's, at least his American uh, filmography. 
music by Malcolm Beltrami. What, what's your connection to the score? How do you feel about it? I really like Mimic. I think that it gets overlooked a lot. And I, I wanted to include it in this because I do think it operates like a slasher. I think it gets written off a little bit. I think it's the Guillermo connection. And I think obviously, you know, the subject and what it's dealing with gets put into more of the sci-fi arena. But if you kind of strip that away and look at it from just what's happening, it's operating very much like a slasher. And I've just always appreciated that about it. And I think that Marco Beltrami's music assists the film in the same way that it does with Scream. I love the instrumentation, the piano and the flute. And I love the emotional depth that he gives these characters. Because for me, the heart of this movie is always with Mira Sorvino's character and kind of that struggle of the creator versus the creation that's really at the heart of this film. And like the slasher element is kind of secondary. And I just think that his ability and willingness to play up that side of this film just really does a lot and assists it a lot. And yeah, I will I will go to bat that this this deserves to be a, categorized as a slasher film. <laughs> I agree. Like his tendency to kind of steer towards the the emotional stuff. Not that that other composers don't do this. Totally. But the way that he does it. I just find really effective why I didn't play this earlier in chronology and why I put it after Halloween H2O and opened with this Alexa one run to the subway is a, is a bit of a long queue, but two, I wanted to play that little piece of that queue because it's a queue that gets used a lot in Halloween H2O, including in some of the cues that I played. So I just kind of wanted to, I thought it was an interesting way to give kind of context (laughs) to the conversation we were having about H2O. The next block of music we're going to play is from a fourth installment into a slasher movie franchise. And in my opinion, it's a franchise that um, has only gotten better, Mm -hmm. has aged like prime wine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So uh, I'm not even going to tell you what it is. Let's just uh, take a listen. Mm-hmm. 
We just heard three cues from Bride of Chucky from 1998, directed by Ronnie Yu, music by Graham Revel or Revel. I never know how to pronounce anybody's name. Same. <laughs> uh, we heard the cues Chucky Proposes slash Plastic Love, Tiffany and Damien, and Chucky's Casket slash Exchange. It's the fourth film in a series, starting with 1989's Child's Play. Graham Revel, uh, I think, is a really interesting composer. He also scored Child's Play 2. The reason why I think he's an interesting composer is because like, he's one of these guys that comes from a completely different place before he even gets to film music. He's considered a pioneer of industrial music because of his band SPK. In 1986, he did an album called The Insect Musicians, which was <laughs> compositions made up completely of digitally manipulated insect sounds. Love it. And he burst onto the film music scene in 1989 with a score for the Australian thriller Dead Calm, which was always a personal fave of mine. I mean, Sam Neill and Billy Zane. Can you get... Billy Zane. Oh, God. <laughs> that cast is incredible. I love that film. Can you get a, a, a better duo? But with that, he... Uh, with that score, he blended solo cello, African rhythms, operatic vocals, electronic tones, panicked breathing, and railway ambience. Uh, he won the Australian equivalent to the Oscar for best score for that. And then through the 90s, things like The Crow and The Craft. I love Bride of Chucky. It's my second favorite film in the franchise. The, the first one, I think, is just the more I watch it over the years, the more I just appreciate at like so many different aspects of it, the filmmaking aspect of it, the music, the practical effects in it, I just think is incredible. So that's my favorite. But Bride of Chucky, I love it. I love the big swing. I love what it did for the franchise. I think this is really the film that was a big turning point and is why that this franchise is still going and like arguably stronger than ever. Which is, I mean, the TV series is amazing. If it, you know, if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Season two coming soon. And what I like about Graham's involvement in it is how fresh it feels and how it fits this big turning point that they were doing. And I think that th these tracks I pick just because, I mean, I just like them. I think that it really exemplifies and highlights the the campiness of it, the humor that we really just see. It's always been there. Chucky's always been, you know, a smug asshole. But like right here, we really see it ramped up. We get Jennifer Tilly and her involvement and her addition as Tiffany. And I think that it's just a perfect partner to this film and his, um, like you said, his ability to infuse these electronic industrial things with the more cinematic orchestral stuff and the way that he's not afraid to play with, play with that in this film makes it feel very new and exciting to me. I don't know. I And like the Tiffany and Damien track is such a fun scene. And I love that we get some vocals in there and it's just so like that whole scene is just hilarious. And Jennifer Tilly is a goddess. And it's just like, I don't know. This film is just a joy. And I think that the music is, it works, works with that and is also just a really fun film score. Yeah. I I've come to, uh, Really appreciate Don Mancini. Um, yes. He's kind of, uh, he's really smart. He's the guy who wrote the original Child's Play, and, and I think he's written all of them, and now he directs, he's directed the last few movies, and he produces the television show. I saw him on something, and he referred to himself as, like, Chucky's agent, which I thought was funny. Yeah. <laughs> Just really appreciate a guy who 
knows where his bread's buttered. And he's like, look, I have this thing. Mm-hmm. And he embraces it. And instead of go off and like yeah. be resentful of the fact that he's known for it, he's just embraced it and kind of shaped the series to be something that he's, you know, he's evolved it in the way that he wants to kind of be a filmmaker and stuff. Like, I just think it's a brilliant uh, series in that way. These cues that we listen to specifically, Chucky Proposes slash Plastic Love, that tremolo guitar, uh, I feel like is was a staple in the 90s. And I'm going to just take a guess and say that that kind of stems from Ang- uh, Angelo Badalamenti's Twin Peaks music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of made it uh, a thing. Tiffany and uh, Damien, as you kind of mentioned earlier, is a fun track. I feel like in the context of the movie, it's kind of source music. But, uh, you know, that the, the instrumental version of that is has also, you know, score in other places of the movie. And with uh, Chucky's Casket in Exchange, Graham Revel uses sounds that aren't over-the-top toy-ish, but reminiscent. Yeah. It creates this, like, feeling of, of toys. Big fan of this series. As we wind the show down, let's play something uh, that's uh, a bit different in feel than what we've heard so far.
We just heard Cannibal Fantasy, The Pit, Let's Go Kill That Bastard from Ravenous, 1999, music by Damon Albarn and Michael Nyman. We're here with Rachel Reeves, and this was another score that uh, Rachel chose specifically for this episode. So uh, I'll let you kind of introduce it and talk about it first. Sure. Uh, So Ravenous, a film that... I'll never, it never gets enough love. I think that it's interesting when putting it with all these other films, because I do think that there's a lot of films that have the influence of Scream, like very evident and clear on them. But this is one of them that I think, I don't know. I admire its willingness to do its own thing and not necessarily like, lean on what Scream was doing. Looking at the score, this combination of Alburn and Nyman is quite interesting. And I've never fully understood how the two got connected. Never dug too deep into that. But I mean, Alburn, blur, huge. And then with later, you know, gorillas, obviously huge. And the how they split up duties was also quite interesting. It was not a co-composition as we normally kind of think of it. Alburn did some tracks, Nyman did some tracks, and then they were kind of put together. Uh, Nyman also produced some of, or I guess produced uh, some of Alburn's tracks, but it was really a joining of two creative forces, which gives the film just such an interesting vibe and a very unique score. And this is one, talking about things that haven't got released. I'm sure there's a lot of licensing because of all these things that we're talking about, but like such a fun score. And like, I just want it all the time and I can't get it. But I I like Nyman's kind of minimalistic experimental approach that he's known for in a lot of ways, willing to take risks, play up that Western feel that this has. And then a lot of sort of the the Albert influences, I think, that we get are very rhythmic, gives these songs a lot of momentum that we hear um, in some of the tracks that we played. Because I, I think, so The Pit, I think, was an Albert track. Let's Go Kill That Bastard, Albert track. And then Cannibal Fantasy, from what I understand, is a Nyman track. But just the way that they work together, I don't know. I'm just in awe of this whole film. I think <laughs> it's beautiful and funny and scary and similar to Mimic. I think it does fit into the slasher mold, but maybe not in the way that we traditionally think about it. It has a tone that I was not expecting. And I think that's <laughs> and, and I think that's kind of some of what you're you're talking about, especially in the opening. Yeah. It has like a lighthearted tone that is unexpected and I don't know necessarily meshes totally well with the remainder of the movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the music is definitely interesting uh, from what you're saying about the way it was approached. And I will say it's not evident in the, in the movie when you're watching it, that like it's yeah. these two different minds, there's nothing clashes. That's kind of a, an interesting marriage of music. And you can kind of tell some things seem more looped towards the end, as opposed to like, you know, maybe live performance, uh, but it kind of all works in a harmonious way. Definitely, you can see the imprint. You can see the influence that Scream and those movies had on things like Mimic and uh, Ravenous. And as horror fans, we know, we all know that horror gets a bad rap. 
And I think what's, you know, every so often, it seems like a you know a film comes along like Scream that proves that horrible is a viable option for films at the box office. And what I think it did was once again, get producers to look at horror films and give films like Ravenous and Mimic a chance, just like where we're at right now. I feel like a lot of Jordan Peele's things did the same thing, really just showed that like, oh, shit, horror. Who knew? What's like, duh. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that for the time period, that movie was Scream. And thank God, because we really got just a wealth of riches out of that period, in my opinion. Uh, anyways, <laughs> then we can go on into the early 2000s, and I can't wait to do that show with you. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll, we'll bookmark it. <laughs> Rachel, tell us uh, one more time where people could find you. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can find me on Instagram at The Vinyl Girl and Twitter at Vinyl Girl, G-R-R-R-L. It's October. I'm going to be busy. Got all sorts of stuff going on. So yeah, go ahead and give me a follow and you can keep up and check out all the fun stuff that I get to do. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Everyone, please do take the time to check out all of her writing. As I already mentioned, she is one of my favorite film and music journalists out there. And once again, please check out Score to Death, The Dark Art of Scary Movie Music on Kickstarter, running through October to November 1st, 2022. Production has only just begun, and we literally cannot make this film or the compilation album of horror themes without the financial support of film music fans like you. And you can subscribe to the film's mailing list at scoretodeath.com. As always, you can find complete track listings for Score to Death Radio episodes at cinematicsoundradio.net. If you've been enjoying Score to Death Radio, please take the time to spread the word on social media. And consider reviewing the show over on Cinematic Sound Radio's Apple Podcast slash iTunes page. If you'd like to keep up with all things Score to Death, you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Score to Death. Please pick up copies of my books, Score to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, and Score to Death 2, More Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, which are available in both paperback and ebook. And you can buy paperbacks from me directly at scoretodeath.com. And please consider checking out Score to Death, the podcast, where I also interview exceptionally talented composers without always sticking so strictly to the horror genre. And like this show, it is available just about everywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm Jay Blake for sure, and you've been listening to Score to Death Radio on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers you hear throughout the program, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And wherever you're listening to us today, please take a moment right now to leave us a rating and a review of the podcast. You can get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt at our Tee Public store. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematic sound radio. And don't forget to check us out on the web at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>